All right. Let me just see. Okay. All right. I am now joined by a very good friend of mine, both in the friend of show sense and in the friend of real life sense, uh, <laughs> David uh, David Griscom, uh, who, of course, people will know from uh, you know from uh, the Michael Brooks show and Left Reckoning, and now increasingly as somebody who writes for Jackman, which makes me very happy. Thanks so much, Ben. I'm happy to be here. It's, yeah, it's nice to be able to write for them finally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I think, um, you know, look, I, I have, I love Jacobin. I, I've, I've written 130 things for Jacobin the last three years. Uh, but um, I will, uh, <laughs> I, I think, uh, I, I don't think it's a state secret that I think Jacobin has a bit of a Brooklyn or Los Angeles problem. So uh, I think that it's good to, uh, I think it's good to diversify uh, regionally, you know, the, uh, you know, who's, uh, who's writing for, who's writing for it and what kind of perspective uh, we're getting, uh, which is certainly what you do in this article. Um, so for people who haven't checked it out yet, there's a link in the description, but it's called uh, Greg Abbott is Texas's most powerful governor ever. That's bad for working people. So um, I take me through this a little bit, because like the I think the thing that might surprise people the most about this article, uh, if they if they don't really follow Texas politics closely, is that, you know, you think about Governor Greg Abbott in COVID. You think of him mm-hmm. as like a, you know, like a, you know, anti, uh, anti-lockdown, anti-mask kind of culture warrior, which he is. But, um, but they, they might be surprised that, for example, he recently renewed uh, the, uh, the, the state of emergency declaration on COVID. Yeah. And, you know, he's been doing that since the, the beginning of the pandemic. And no, I mean, you're totally right that, you know, there's this kind of irony where Texas was certainly one of the states that ended its, you know, COVID restrictions fairly early compared to other places. And, you know, I mean, um, when just like talking on COVID, like the thing that's interesting about Abbott, and I think it's important to understand him as a figure because he's, you know, going to go down in history as a very influential governor of the state. Um, you know, a lot of people who follow politics, they always try to figure out like what makes Abbott tick, right? Because like he was a Bush Republican when that was what got you, you know, towards the top of the ticket. Now he's very much styled himself as a kind of Trumpish, you know, mm-hmm. right wing um, mm-hmm. populist guy. And when he uh, when he first put in the same kind of lockdown orders as like every other state did, um, he immediately got this huge right wing backlash. And, you know, a lot of the people more on the far right and right wing of the Republican Party um, were very furious at him for, you know, restricting businesses, mass mandates, all this kind of stuff. So. Texas at first did the exact same thing as everything, everybody else, but Abbott responded to the pressure um, by using the powers of the governor not to impose, you know, lockdown or mask mandates, but actually to stop localities and cities and counties and other authorities in the state uh, from being able to do anything about COVID. And like, that's an interesting enough story on its own, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing that I think is really notable now is that he's continuing to use those emergency powers to really, um, you know, shore up his authority in the state of Texas. I mean, we can get more into it in a second, but, you know, it's just really notable to, for people to understand that, you know, historically, Texas governors haven't been, uh, you know, a very powerful state position compared to other states where they have strong governors. Like in Texas, they don't get to select a cabinet. 
Um, you know, all those kind of equivalent government agencies are run typically through board systems. And the idea was to prevent any one governor being able to centralize power. But um, if it's not the system he, he inherited from his predecessor, Rick Perry, uh, to his more recent actions using COVID-19 to basically navigate um, around those kind of constitutional restrictions on his power, um, you know, Abbott really has found a way to flip um, the position into something that is highly centralized, highly powerful, and highly influential here. Yeah, um, and, and and it is interesting that the beginning of that you noted that you know he was when, when he was uh, enacting more normal COVID policies at the beginning, he got all this pushback from the right wing of the Texas GOP, uh, which you know for I mean I think people probably have some idea, but if you look at like the the state platform they adopted a little while ago. Like the the right wing of the Texas GOP is like somewhere to the right of Mussolini, um, <laughs> like it's it's uh, I mean it's 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 you know really seriously insane. I mean I wrote a I wrote an article for the Daily Beast about the Texas GOP state platform, and one of the things you pointed out to me when we were talking about that article is like, um, look, these guys are dangerous. We shouldn't uh, you know we shouldn't disregard that. Also though, they're um, you know the sort of uh, the sort of amount of, of ability they have to actually select candidates and, and get their will done. These party activists is limited, but clearly, even so, somebody like Abbott is still keeping like one eye out on them. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, the thing it's 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 notable like in Texas politics. Like, there's a good piece in Texas uh, Tribune, I believe. Um, no, mm-hmm. no, Texas Monthly um, on uh, on minority government in Texas and. You know, it's one of those things I remind folks of all of all the time, both people who live here and people outside of the state that, you know, a lot of these things that the Texas GOP have been doing are not popular um, with voters in the sense of polling. Like, you know, only around like 15 percent of Texans support the abortion ban. Uh, The gun laws that have been passed are wildly, you know, while Texans generally support, um, you know, having some kind of personal gun rights here compared to other states. You know, people don't like, for example, open carry. Uh, The Mm -hmm. police don't like it. Um, and what has ended up happening is that because the, <laughs> the statewide elections are so one-sided, you know, the threat really is the threat from the right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Abbott, Abbott had some pretty Looney Tune um, uh, challengers when he ran for re-election this time in the Republican primary, and he handedly uh, defeated them. Uh, but they influenced his, his policy, like Don Huffines, who's like a real, you know, wild fella is probably putting it nicely um you know threatened to shut down trade with mexico um and abbott at the time like rightfully you know chided him about how ridiculous that was well, i would you know, say that would actually be to try to do six months later abbott shut down trade with the on the border with mexico <laughs> yeah. so you know they, they 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 have um a lot of influence even if it's not direct right because that's who mm-hmm. they're they're really worried about um, and I think that that creates a really bad political situation, um, you know, morally creates a horrible situation. Politically, it's it's a real uh, nightmare because with the weakness of the Democratic Party, you know, there is really only one direction for these things to go right now. Yeah. And uh, and, and I do want to talk about the weakness of the Democratic Party in just a second. Mm-hmm. But, but the other thing before we get off the, um, you know, the way that uh, Abbott has maybe kind of ironically given his COVID policies, um used these COVID emergency powers uh, to um, to assert his will, even to, in fact, stop localities from uh, from taking COVID more seriously. Uh, but one of the 
things that you point out, again, this is a connection that I think a lot of people outside the state might not make. Uh, one of the things you point out in the article is that that's also like some of this kind of like crazy and evil immigration stuff that he's done mm-hmm. uh, has actually been done using the COVID emergency powers. Yeah. So, I mean, um, when it comes to the Operation Lone Star, which, you know, has been a, a real disaster, both like on what it's doing to migrants at the border. Um, it's been a huge waste of money um, because legally, even though they're showing up there and harassing people and it's it's bad. Um, they do have to, there are, is a certain understanding that a state can't run a parallel border operation, um, or at least there was one, and that might be changing very soon. Um, you know, so for a while they were like inspecting vehicles that came into the state, which, you know, was bad, but they weren't successful, like even in, by like the standards they were holding themselves to because they were sort of, um, you know, held back. But yeah, Abbott uses when he declared, um, he used a disaster declaration, which is what he did with COVID. The disaster declaration, I think, came on the books in like 1978. And it was set up Mm -hmm. to, you know, when there's a hurricane, basically, to let the governor send people down and help people um, when, when, you know, when you need to move quickly. Um, Never was intended to be something like the COVID, you know, uh, disaster declaration, which has been going on for for years now. But he declared another uh, disaster declaration on counties uh, on the border and yeah, utilize COVID-19 as one of the justifications saying that, you know, migrants are bringing COVID-19 into the state of Texas and in interest of public health, um, they need to restrict, uh, you know, migration. He's also used COVID-19 money, federal COVID-19 money um, to fund the border operation because it's a few billion dollars now, Operation Lone Star. And he's taken federal money that wasn't being used to help folks out here, but to, um, you know, in the way that it was intended, he sort of did some budget maneuvering um, to funnel that money um, towards the border. And like, you know, the thing is, like with Abbott's stuff is that, like, I know that sometimes it can sound a little bit I mean, it should be frightening to folks, but like it's tedious, like the way mm-hmm. that he does this is very tedious. And I think that's one thing that's very important to understand about Abbott is he's a fairly wooden fellow. Like Rick Perry was an idiot. Um, you know, <laughs> I wasn't really into him or anything like that. But, you know, he had a little stage presence and Abbott yeah. doesn't have that as much. Um, but what Abbott, the reason Abbott is sort of outshining even Rick Perry now is because he has a very astute legal mind and he's very comfortable pushing into those gray areas of, of the law. So, you know, he's done that um, using these COVID-19 disaster declarations, he did that with the disaster declaration at the border. You know, just a couple of days ago, he's, um, you know, he's trying to invoke the invasion clause uh, to even further militarize the border, setting up gunboats, um, increasing mobilization of the Texas National Guard. I mean... You know, really, really dangerous, uh, dangerous stuff. And, you know, people don't like Abbott on the liberal and left side, for sure. But I think a lot of people don't realize just what he's doing. It's not just he's making policy decisions that we don't like. He's rapidly expanding and changing the way that our government works here. Um, and, and that really should worry people. I mean, on another subject, like on uh, when it comes to ERCOT, you know, the the um, which manages Texas's like overmarketized grid here. Um, Abbott has been incredibly influential in that process, even though he has no legal authority or standing to do so. Um, you know, there's been reports that he's basically vetoing CEO picks. He's controlling their public, um, their PR. Basically, he's having to approve or disapprove of statements coming out of of that organization. And again, that's not. Abbott's job in the Constitution of Texas. That's something that he has taken for himself. 
And because the legislature has been so dominated by Republicans, and not even all just Republicans who like are huge Greg Abbott fans, Republicans who are scared of Greg Abbott because he has a history of being very, very um, vindictive with folks who, that he thinks uh, cross him. There's an article, you know, a year and a half ago or something like that about um, how surprising it has been how many vetoes Abbott has, uh, you know, been using. Yeah, because um, he'll he'll use it not just because he doesn't like the policy, but even if he does to to punish yeah. uh, Republicans who've crossed him, uh, whose pet policy this was. Exactly, man. And like, um, you know, this is I put this in the article, but there's a really great like long form uh, piece in Texas Monthly, you know, which is not necessarily like a critical piece. It was just like, who is Greg Abbott? This guy who's running the state here. Um, and no people close to Abbott were willing to speak to Texas Monthly. And what I'm saying is like, not that this was like, a, you know, a friendly piece in the sense that it was just like writing down whatever sure. Abbott wanted to hear. It, it wasn't like, you know, here's why Abbott's so awful and, you know, here's the ways to defeat him. It was just like a kind of, you know, per, personal interest piece and somebody who has a lot of influence over our culture and history. And yeah, everybody was too afraid to speak to um, to speak to Texas Monthly about that. And like, I think that that just gives you people an idea that these are the things that come out publicly. and You can only imagine what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I was just thinking, you know, when you, you said that uh, he doesn't really have the stage presence of, uh, of, <laughs> of Rick Perry, uh, that you can tell uh, you can tell what a dud Abbott is in terms of, of that, because uh, Donald Trump praised him in his speech last night, which he wouldn't do if he considered him to be a potential rival. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, didn't, I did not notice. I did not hear that. That's actually... Um... I mean, I, I, I'm sure I've told you this before. I'm sure people have heard this example. But, you know, the thing is, Greg Abbott definitely does have presidential ambitions. Yeah. Um, and I remember when he did his, his when he shut down the border with Mexico, um, you know, he was doing there's no real reason to do this other than to just sort of be like, I'm the tough on immigration. Right. Um, and, you know, he got his wish, got on Fox News. But the Chiron said, is uh, Greg Abbott the Ron DeSantis of Texas? <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, he must have loved that, dude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is certainly not what he uh, wanted. But I, you know, I think that he's definitely, you know, wanted to explore a bit in 24. So it'll be interesting to see how he tries to play that. Because, yeah, he doesn't have the same kind of appeal as a DeSantis, I think. You know, the thing is just, like, to be fair to Abbott, like, you know, he has, like, an interesting from the conservative side story, you know? Mm -hmm. Somebody who, um, you know, had a really tragic injury. Uh, when he was young. Um, that's why he's in a wheelchair. He was on a jog and a tree fell on him. And I've heard him give speeches like this in, in previous runs um, where he talks about, um, you know, how he would like work out um, after he, because he was an athlete his whole life, how he would continue to, you know, stay fit when he was in a wheelchair. You know, mm -hmm. he would talk about how he would roll up to the top of a parking garage and then roll down and he would just say like just keep going just keep going just keep going so what i'm saying is like abbott has like raw material to do it he just he, he he either doesn't have it um or he's not interested in it but one thing he is really good at um is raising money he yeah. you know if people remember after uvalde um you know and i'm amazed that this i think there were just so many horrors that day it was hard to make that into the main issue but um yeah. <laughs> he was absent for a long time because he had to go to some fundraising events um, and, uh, you know, willingly was doing that. And like, that's, that's the kind of, uh, you know, politician that, that Abbott is, he understands power and he understands money. 
And, yeah. uh, you know, in American politics, that's not a bad combination, even if, you know, the speeches aren't something to, uh, <laughs> uh, to write home about. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah, the Trump thing was just in passing. He was like, you know, they've got a great governor down there, you know. <laughs> great governor. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I, I do want to get to the Dems because uh, yeah. this is kind of the, the immediate news hook for, uh, for the article. Uh, so, you know, people, uh, you know, may remember from, from such films as the 2020 election, uh, <laughs> Beto O'Rourke, uh, who... Um, Originally, the reason we all know his name is that he uh, was almost but not quite elected as a senator, and then he um, and then he was um, and then then he ran for president, and that didn't go very well either. Uh, but even so, he still managed to get a lot of liberals to give him a lot of money uh, to run for governor of Texas. So how did that go? I mean, not good. Um, yeah, I mean. Maybe I'll start with just like how bad it was. Um, so in, in 2018, when Beto uh, was running against Cruz, um, there was also, a, you know, a governor's race um, with uh, Lupe Valdez, who was the Democratic mm -hmm. candidate there. And, you know, folks don't know that name, you know, and not trying to even throw too much shade that direction. That's just not somebody who I think has had like a big national or statewide um, impact past that, that campaign. And uh, Beto barely outperformed her by something like 0.5% of the vote. Jesus. So it was, it was, you know, with all of the money, Beto broke records in the state of Texas uh, for fundraising at something like $77 million um, that he was able to raise. He, like, he broke a record in like one quarter for the most money ever raised in one quarter by a politician here. So he had a lot of money-making ability. There's obviously a lot of national attention on this, and you thought that there was going to be a lot of enthusiasm for um, for him. Um, but not only did, uh, um, you know, he, he not outperform uh, Lupe Valdez in terms of, uh, um, the, the result against Abbott, uh, turnout, um, was lower in, in this midterm than it was in 2018, which is ironic. Cause like, that's the whole Beto thing is that like, you know, in 2018, maybe Beto was sort of carrying uh, Lupe Valdez, you know, um, by making that campaign so exciting for folks. And now we have him like the top of the ticket. That's the big race here. Um, and yeah, turnout, you know, was it, it wasn't, you know, massively far off, but it was still less than. Um, it's even worse when you look at the percentage of, of, of voters. People, you know, just to be fair, put on my little, you know, political reporter hat for a second. It is notable that like uh, both 2018 and 2022 are massively um, larger voter turnout than any other kind of midterm election in Texas. Um, but I don't know. I feel like we're starting to enter in a period of time where people are voting a little bit more frequently, too, that I don't think you can hold it all up to Beto, you know, um, inspired so many people and it just didn't work out this time. I think that there's something to be said about the fact um, that with all of that money and attention, you're not really doing much more um, than the, the previous candidate for governor in 2018. Somebody who people don't know, I think raised something like less than like one million dollars, like actually to correct myself, like less than two million. How much how much to beta raise? Like seventy-seven. Yeah, yeah. You know. uh, that is that is getting into like uh, that that is getting into like Jeb Bush levels of disconnect between uh, fundraising and and like actual effects. I I mean totally, and like it's it's 
it's interesting to to see that um i think it's also notable too that a lot of beto's money was coming from out of state um mm -hmm. which i'm not really i haven't really done enough analysis on georgia to make a comparison um but i think there's I something think to be said Abrams for sure yeah. yeah i think there's something to be said about these kind of celebrity dem candidates um in in, in places where people uh yeah, you know, where people put their hopes and dreams on them and they might not necessarily be people who are eligible to vote in the state. Um, you know, and like, I also just, I mean, I want to open it up and hear whatever questions you have, yeah. but I also just want to note that like, I yeah. I don't think people realize how bad Beto's run in 2020 affected mm. him. You know, people, mm -hmm. people, I think, really felt betrayed. Like I'm talking about Democrats, right? Republicans have made their mind up about him. Um, a lot of Democrats, I feel like, felt like, oh, well, I thought he was in it for us, in it for this state. And very quickly, he's off in Iowa and you know, all the rest <laughs> of the country. As much as we love our brothers and sisters all around everywhere else, it was one of those things like, there's a yeah, fight he, here. And it feels like you're not th that interested in waging it. Right. It's a stepping stone. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and that is the weirdest thing uh, about like dem Democratic politics right now that like, look, I can understand if he won. And then he was in Iowa, right? Like that. That's like, it's like okay, you know, it might still be disappointing to people in Texas that he doesn't want to stay and, um, you know, fight for them in Texas. Uh, but like, at least that would make sense in terms of conventional politics that you, you know, you win a race where it'd be really unlikely that you win, and then you use that as a stepping stone. But like, the idea that you can lose and like, you know, you get some kind of participation pro trophy because like you, know, you came closer than people thought you would and that that's enough to make you a national figure. It just seems bizarre to me. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I mean, no, I mean the presidential, I mean, I think he just, he just likes doing it. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's worth noting too for folks because I think there's a little bit of confusion um, about his like previous career. He was yeah. a, he was a, he was a, you know, he was in Congress mm -hmm. um, for years uh, before he ran for Senate. And every once in a while, I just wanted to make sure people know that because I feel like sometimes people will say, well, he should have run for Congress, you know, before he ran for yeah. Senate or whatever. It's like, well, he did that. He was sort of going for, you know, he was trying to jump up. And I mean, like, you know, the real open question is like, I've seen people wanting to lock and load again um, in this next Senate election. Um <laughs> which will be, uh, um, you know, an interesting thing. The thing about Beto is, like, I don't want to let him off the hook here, but you also have to understand the weakness of uh, the Democratic Party in Texas for why, right. you know, this happens. Like, you know, Beto um, lost, um, and he lost bigly, and, uh, you know, we have to recognize that, but he had a, a campaign apparatus that was um, – at least more rooted, and I just mean that like just physically uh, there in a lot of places where the Democratic Party has sort of disappeared from completely. Um, and they obviously did, you know, mobilize a decent amount of people in in the suburbs, um, in cities like Austin. Um, I think, you know, when it comes down to it, like one of the thing, one thing that really did hurt Beto is that um, Harris County had very low, uh, not low, but like not as much voter turnout as they had sort mm -hmm. of expected or wanted. Um, the point is, is that like there are two parallels here. Like there's the Texas Democratic Party, and then there's their Better Work campaign, and they don't actually like cross over as much as people might think. So, you know, that's why you see these kind of politicos talking about another Beto run because, um, you know, while Beto loses, it's not winning at, at the polls. Beto makes money in a way that other Democrat 
candidates um, in, in a way that other Democrat candidates um, are unable to do. So, like, I think that that's attractive for, you know, maybe some cynical reasons. Um, but, you know, running a statewide campaign here is, is, is tough. Um, I don't think it's an acceptable, you can accept that as an excuse, but, sure. you know, understand that, like, you know, like, I don't, Beto isn't, like, my guy. Um, but I think mm-hmm. sometimes people think if they had, like, maybe, like, a different kind of candidate, um, it would have been different. I don't think um, that that's the case, really. Um, you know, maybe in the sense if it was, like, an outsider Bernie Sanders kind of thing, it, it could be interesting. Um, but, you know, your run-of-the-mill Democrat, you know, oh, we're going to get a kind of moderate Democrat to run instead of Beto, I don't think it would have been much better. Um, yeah, so so I want to I want to talk about this. I should say, by the way, if anybody has a question for for David, as we're getting into our last few minutes with him here, please do please do get in the caller queue uh, so we can take your question. But um, uh, if anybody has any, get it before we finish up. But but uh, but the last thing I really wanted to uh, to talk to you about was the state of the actual left in Texas, because uh, as dismal as all this is, and maybe we could even get it a little bit more to like what the sort of like bigger structural problems are for uh, the Texas Democratic Party, you know, since like you you mentioned earlier uh, that one of the ways in which Texas is supposed to have a very weak governor of their constitution is that uh, they don't have a cabinet that they could just appoint when they get in. There are these like boards and commissions that um, are you know, basically set up so that like you'll have people on them who were appointed by previous governors and stuff like that is my understanding. But, um, you know, it's been so long since Democrats won the governors, yeah. you know, that like that's, you know, that almost doesn't make a difference anymore. So, so I, I, I do definitely want to talk about like what the sort of like big impediments are to the Democrats, you know, making a breakthrough, but also I want to talk about some of this, some of the signs of, like some of the kind of promising signs of life, you noted the article about the actual left in Texas, mm-hmm. which, which there actually are some that like, yeah. uh, you know, like, like, look, I mean, the, uh, the, there's going to be like the sort of informal social democratic caucus in, in Congress is going to have somebody from Texas in it now, Greg Caesar mm-hmm. and the, uh, uh, says, are they, uh, and, uh, there's, uh, and there would have been two if, uh, if, if the, uh, if the national Democrats, you know, had it squashed, uh, Cisneros. Yeah, I mean, um, no, th- that's the thing that gives me hope, right, is that, uh, you know, I've a long time made the argument that the one advantage that we have in Texas over other places is that the Democratic Party is weak enough here that, you know, really talking about trying to build like a vibrant left wing alternative to the right, um, you know, we don't have to overcome as right. much <laughs> like an institutionalized organization, um, though we do have to overcome, you know, the distrust and the non-voting in the state. Um, and that's going to be very difficult. But I mean, you, you know, you don't have to go up against like the Democratic Party machine, like New York or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, on the positive side, um, you know, there's been a lot of really great grassroots um, movements. Uh, Ground Game Texas, for example, um, you know, has been trying to, you know, really step up the organizing in the state. Um, you know, weed, uh, weed, workers and wages. Um, it's like their slogan. And they won a weed decriminalization in five cities in Texas. So that's very nice. encouraging. Um, Greg Gassar, as you know, you were just mentioning, you know, is going to be, yeah, is, you know, is, is got elected. So another person joining up that left block of the Democratic Party in Congress is great. And like, you know, already we're seeing the positive effects of that. Um, just uh, yesterday, yesterday morning, um, workers, uh, uh, the Workers Defense Fund, which represents construction workers here, filed a, a complaint with the Department of Labor over Musk's horrific abuse 
of workers who built his new Tesla Gigafactory in Del Valley, um, right outside of Austin. And uh, you know, Greg Kassar immediately is on that. And in fact, Greg Kassar, before he became a member of the city council, was the policy director of the workers' defense um, uh, project. So like, that's, a, that's a very exciting thing. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of, like, inc- you know, exciting mobilizations in Houston and Dallas and Austin um, and San Antonio. San Antonio has some leftists on the city council there. Um, and I think that, you know, the thing to remember in Texas is that the cities and the state are, are very different entities. You know, Austin's a fairly liberal city. We obviously just sent Greg Kassar, um, to, you know, to Congress from where he was in city council, where he did a lot of great work. In San Antonio, you have great members who are doing a lot of important things. So, like, there's a lot of mobilization. And I think that the, the thing for the left here, like, you know, Democratic Socialist left, is going to be trying to figure out how to move um, to that next level of, like, state representation and getting more people on, on the national level. Um, but on the state level with, like, the Democratic Party, so th- those are the positives, right? The positives, we have momentum. The negatives are this. State de- Democratic Party is just a complete joke. You have counties where they have almost no representation. And e- even in counties where they get dominated, it's like old boys club kind of thing. You know, they don't like young people showing up and trying to get involved. They bet big on two things, um, on demographics. So mm-hmm. people moving here, population changing, um, was going to mobilize people. Hasn't been the case. I think it's wrong to think people coming here from California, etc., are going to be reliable Democrat voters. Um, you know, one, because a lot of times people who move to a place don't really get registered to vote for a little while. And two, a lot of people moved here because they're weird right-wingers who, like, love Greg <laughs> Abbott even more than, you know, some conservative members of my family, you know? Um, so, like, thinking that they're all going to line up behind you is, is, you know, wrong. And the other thing is this demographics is destiny. You know, Texas um, is now uh, the largest ethnic group in the state is, is Latinos. Uh, white people are not the majority in the state anymore. And a lot of people thought that that was going to flip uh, the state blue. But what you're seeing is the Republicans are recruiting and doing, a, uh, you know, uh, a good job when you think about how disadvantaged they should be with the, those groups, um, given Trump stuff and Abbott stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've been able to pick people up, you know, not a, not like a majority or anything like that. But when you sure. dominate the rural part of the state, when you dominate a lot of the suburbs and things like that, that's changing a little bit. Um, it doesn't take too many pickups with the largest group here, you know, to really create a like a viable coalition. Like the Democratic Party just thought that that, that was like a gift to them. You know what I mean? Like God's gift to them. Just like this, the numbers are going to change on the board and you're going to have an advantage. And you have to show up for people. Um, the last thing is that there's been this fantasy. Um, it, there's There's been this like fantastical like idea that somebody's going to come and like wake up the sleeping masses in the state of Texas. And that's what they thought Beto was going to do. The line you hear from Democrats all the time is Texas is in a red state, it's a non-voting state. And in the sense, like, I agree that, like, I think it's really important to remember that, like, abortion, higher minimum wage, a lot of the things that we run on are not unpopular with people. The thing is, they don't think that voting for the Democratic candidate on the ballot is going to do it. So why bother? Right. Um, Why bother and, 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 you know, get into that? And, like, that's voter depression, which is different from voter suppression. And that's something that's been caused by the failure of the Democratic Party, both on the state level, but on the national level. Like I mentioned some interviews that I read in a piece in Texas Monthly where they profiled a lot of non-voters. You know, they all said things like, um, you know, I want more regulation on Wall Street, etc. Like things that, you know, make it seem like they're in our camp. And then they said, I voted for Obama in 2012. And, you know, 
very disappointed. So why would I ever do that again? Um, mm-hmm. You know, so those are those are the things that I think um, are a big impediment to the state Democratic Party because they have no answer for that, and it will be an impediment for us because people have been promised so much by Democrats for so long. Why are they going to believe, you know, this very mobilized and, you know, attractive and interesting group of, of, of young workers who are trying to mobilize politics here? Um, you know, we have to show them that there's something on the other side that, that you know, that, that we can deliver. And it's hard to do that because to be able to do that, we have to start winning some things. Uh, right. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Uh, we do have a couple of callers. So I want to see if we could uh, take maybe both of them quickly before we... Uh, before we get off, uh, so we have uh, Chase first. Yep, there we go. Yep. How you guys doing? Not bad. How are you? Not too bad. I had a quick anecdote and then a quick question. Um, the first is I remember a, a line Vio Key wrote in his book uh, Southern Politics and State and Nation. Mm. Um, I think he was commenting that like that the combination of bigger city political machines and like the ethnic balance of the state was going to make Texas liberal fairly mm-hmm. soon. And he wrote that in like 1949. So that's not a, that's not, not a, a, a good indication of the long-term trends. <laughs> Cause it seems like every election cycle people wish upon the star. Uh, but I, I had a, a question, which was how do you think the, um, the politics around the border plays a role in both state level politics and nationally with Abbott. And, you know, I, not, not only just the, the sort of political football, but the sort of political economy around mm. border security. Because I, um, I remember, I remember some people making the argument that, uh, some of the border counties that went pretty strong for Trump in 2020, um, it was cause, of, um, you know, um, the border wall was actually a, a major employer mm. down there. So I was just curious if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, and, like, I would say, like, you know, in defense of VOP, um, you know, like, in the sense of what you saw in Texas, I mean, Texas did have a very strong period of time um, with more progressive, like, liberal politicians. It was really in the 80s and 90s when you saw this Republican Mm -hmm. swing, you know. Um, So that is something that I think we have to understand, too, is that, you know, while you did see more urbanization changing the state of politics, the suburbanization of the state also really shifted uh, the game, I think, a lot, too. But um, to, to the border stuff, I mean, like, you know, I think it's important to remember, like, the states here and, like, the, the reality is that, you know, Biden still wins those, those those counties, the vast majority of them, by a significant margin. But it was, it's was it been this trend that, you know, the Republicans are becoming more competitive, and that's why those congressional races were a big deal. Um, like, the, on the political economy level, it's like, yeah, I mean, um, it's a big jobs program for people. And, um, you know, a lot of people who might have, you know, Latino heritage or something like that, um, you know, end up working uh, for Border Patrol. So the imagination, I think, of, that some people have of, of what that is, is, is incorrect. Um, it's also important to remember that, like, you know, all of these identities, too, that, that we have and like the liberals have in their head they sometimes portray that on, on communities where it doesn't make as much sense like you know you'll like texas used to be a part of, of mexico so you have people whose families have been here before texas was a state right um and like th- there's there's a difference there um and yeah. uh you know and, and 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 lastly like when it comes to the the border i mean you know um regardless of what your position is 
on whether or not we should have a more open or a hard border. You know, I think that we should go back to the traditional system that we had here where it was very open and then people came over and did work when it was available and they left when there wasn't work. Right now we have a hard border, so you get over, you're not going back, right? Um, right. But the thing is, is like in, in the border region, I mean, you know, people do have their negative effects to that, right? If you're having people coming across, you know, property and things like that, you're having borders <laughs> patrol on your land. Um, you know, it is an issue um, in the sense of like, it, it's something that affects folks and you have to have an answer to it. And I don't think that the liberals have been very good on both in Beto's campaign or on, on, on the national level of really being able to speak to like, here's what our solution um, you know, to, to that, that issue is going to be, right? And like in the absence of being able to make an argument about like what we want to do, um, you know, in better, like, of course, like at times it said, but Abbott ran on immigration. You know what I mean? He ran on, on fear mongering about immigration and, and Beto really ran on abortion and, and, and gun stuff. And, um, <coughs> you know, if, if you let Abbott define it, yeah. Um, you know, you're going to get a very, uh, you know, you're anyone who thinks that it, it, something should be done or, you know, we need more funding or whatever, it, regardless if it's like a humane immigration policy or a barbaric one. Um, yeah, if you well, let Abbott be if, the guy who's like going to do something about it, then, you know, you're, you're opening yourself up to defeat. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's very much like the way that the crime issue has uh, played out, you know, at a place uh, like New York, even right. That like if you. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I think the I think the right wing solutions to these problems are fucking awful. But yeah. uh, but like when people perceive a real problem and only one side is even talking about that problem, uh, it's going to be very hard for that not to play well for them. But um, but OK, I, will, I do want to take our uh, our other uh, caller. Um, so I uh, believe that is our friend Kevin. How are you doing today? Hey, I think I'm unmuted now. Yep. Yeah. Hey, how you guys doing? Not bad. Awesome. It's uh, great to see you, uh, or at least see Ben right now. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I have a very like general question for both of y'all, just something I want to put out to you, and then uh, something, uh, David, I want to ask you about specifically. Um, the, so first... I'm wondering, I'm trying to get like a political science club going, you know, I teach high school and, um, I, you know, with all these like recent laws and stuff or, you know, all this like talk about a lot of, you know, censoring teachers or you, you can't like talk about any political issue type stuff. That's not really as much of an issue. I don't think where I'm at, the bigger issue I have is just getting kids interested in it. Like there seems to be like no interest in like politics at all uh, at this school that I'm at right now. I'm just wondering if you guys have any, Ben, I know you uh, work with younger people. Like if uh, y'all have any ideas on like how I might activate younger people or get them to see like the importance or just get them interested in politics. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that a lot of that does happen anyway right like i think i think a lot of younger people um are actually uh fairly politically activated i mean i think when they're not you know i mean it, it, it sometimes has to do with some of those larger issues that david identified earlier that uh impact people you know in in a lot of different uh age groups but i mean like i think that the you know i i think that the sort of um 
I guess the big thing for me would be just sort of pushing the idea that, you know, like if, if you know, people who aren't right, like, like, and I, I want to hear what David says and ask you this question, because this is going to be a very general answer for me, but like, you know, I, I think that, um, that people who aren't, it's often for reasons that are like pretty straightforward, which, um, which is that it doesn't, it doesn't really seem like a vehicle for anything that could like actually help them with stuff that they, uh, that they, that's like going to concretely make, uh, you know, make life better for them. And I mean, I think a lot of the way that, that, uh, that American liberals often talk about politics actually plays into that, you know, cause it's like, maybe if you aren't part of certain groups or whatever, it's like sort of, uh, it's something that you're, you know, like politics is maybe something you do out of a sense of, you know, obligation to other people, but not necessarily as a way of, um, as a way of like helping you to actually get things that, that you need, you know, which can be really self-defeating. But anyway, I want to go to David. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, it's, that's like the general answer of like just anyone. And when it comes to politics is like, you know, reminding them that politics is, is a way to, you know, change your life for the better. And like, I think that, um, if I were to guess, like, you know, a lot of that demobilization that, you know, being a young person is that it doesn't matter what I think. Um, you know, it's sort of predetermined. Things are sort of set in a certain direction, and mm-hmm. finding ways. I um, mean, you know, your, your students better than we do. Um, you know, to, to to show them that, like, no, it it really does um, end up mattering um, what you think about these questions. And uh, if you don't want to participate in it, someone else is going to figure out what you want for you. Um, which I don't know too many, you know, late teenagers <laughs> who like <laughs> other people deciding stuff for them. And I, I you know that might be a route to go into. Yeah, I like I like that a lot. The last thing you said, especially the uh, you know somebody else is going to do it for you if you don't do it yourself. Yeah, that's a good line. Um, well, thanks for that, y'all. Uh, I and uh, David, I have a just like super consequential, important <laughs> question for you. What do you think about this? I don't know if you've spoken about this elsewhere, but what do you think about this uh, George Jones movie that's coming out? Michael Shannon playing him. What? Have you seen this? Do you do you know about this uh, controversy? No, I haven't. Um, what's is the what's the controversy around it? Um, it's not really a controversy. Just that <laughs> Michael Shannon is playing George Jones, which is weird because he looks nothing like him, and <laughs> uh, and the the soundtrack too. They're they're doing the thing, the uh, the cash thing, where mm, the, it oh. seems like they're singing the songs. And as as distinctive of a voice as Johnny Cash has, yeah. George Jones is like nobody can replicate that. No, 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 no um, hate towards Johnny Cash, but George Jones is probably like one of the greatest singers yes. <laughs> in, in country music history. George, I mean Johnny Cash, you can do a Cash, and most people feel like can do a Cash impersonation, good or bad. Yeah. Um, Lord. Yeah, I think um, I don't know. Um, I'll, I'll have to look into that. I mean, I'll probably. You have to, you know, spend ten dollars or whatever on a ticket to see it when it comes out. But um, I hadn't seen too much on it before. I mean, I feel like this is the way they're going. The these biopic movies, right? I mean, uh, it seems to be good money maker after the Elvis one. <laughs> yeah, hopefully this will be one of those that isn't trying that, to capture the whole I life. Hated, so. I hated Walk the Line, by the way. Um, I thought it was awful. I, I thought it was like <laughs> as a movie, it was fine, but like. 
they made Johnny Cash out to be like this very like anxious fellow, which you know, like he had a lot of issues. <laughs> Um, but I don't think like extreme anxiety the way Joaquin Phoenix played him uh, really worked out for me. I agree with that. I'm just thinking, Matt. I I need to move to Austin. Movie theater tickets are only ten dollars. <laughs> <laughs> we have a pass. Um. Okay, there you go. <laughs> well, um, well, I do want to uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, for the call. I do want to say um, that. Uh, you know, it, it did occur to me as we were talking and I was like pulling up your, your article uh, to that, um, you know, the, you know, you came on to talk about the uh, the very first uh, thing that you wrote for Jacobin uh, back in uh, back in July. The, te- the uh, Texas shows the pitfalls of liberal climate politics. We obviously had a conversation just now about this new one, but uh, we never actually talked about the uh the fence cutting oh. wars article so so we should we should we should put that in the book sometime soon i'd be really happy to do that i'll i'll, I'll tell that story anytime <laughs> nice all right well uh let's plan on it uh meanwhile i'm probably gonna do uh, another one of these in a day or two should have a new piece in the daily beast to talk about by then uh thank you so much david you want to remind people where they can find you yeah, you can find me at Twitter, David Griscom. Um, you can listen to the show I do with Matt Leck, Left Reckoning. It goes on every Tuesday. Um, you get more of this stuff. We we just spent we dedicate a lot of time to talking about this Musk Musk story. So um, <laughs> it's in the it's in the uh, opening of of this week's show. And I think we're going to release as a video tomorrow morning, if that's how you prefer to prefer to see it on uh, YouTube. But you know, really appreciate chatting with you, Ben, as always, and uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. All right, thank you so much, David. 